0: Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor.
1: And by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here.
0: On today's episode, we'll be talking about multiple sclerosis with disabled writer and speaker Aaron Haneman. We'll discuss how MS presents, the impact of her diagnosis as a teenager, how a major flare-up and its aftermath affected her life, and the importance of disability representation. Before we go into
1: our interview, we wanted to share a little promo from the folks at the Reframeables podcast. I'm not, and I'm back. Two very different sisters who try to reorient life through the stories we tell. We call it reframing. Sometimes we do it through conversations just the two of us. And sometimes we bring in artists, thinkers, and creators to help us along. Always, we like to leave you with some new reframable to chew on as we work through life's big and small stuff together. You can find Reframeables on any platform you listen to podcasts on, or follow them at Reframeables across any and all
0: social media platforms. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it's for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Aaron. Hello,
1: Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us on Brains.
2: Hi, Heather. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I wanted to first ask, is there anything for us or our listeners to know before we get started?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. So the first thing that I think people should know when listening to somebody with multiple sclerosis or a brain injury or a stroke, all sorts of different issues that can affect speech. My speech is somewhat affected by my MS. It's usually in situations when I'm nervous, and I'm not that nervous for this, but I'm a tiny bit. So If I do halt in my speech, it's okay. One thing that happens to me a lot is I lose words Mm -hmm. and I will ask you for them because, and a lot of people actually don't like that. A lot of people in the disability community don't want you to fill in for them, but I generally will ask you to fill in Mm -hmm. before you start filling yourself because I I just like to get to the point and it's, it's, (laughs) it's like annoying that I don't remember words. So I just have you help me. And I want to say thank you so much for sending me the um, questions in advance because That's something that's an accommodation for people with disabilities, all sorts of disabilities, not just, you know, a a neurological disability. And even like employers doing interviews, that could be an accommodation that you ask Hmm. for. Um, And it's extremely helpful to have that. And I wouldn't have necessarily needed it before my major flair. And I did need it this time. So I just like, you you already did that inclusion piece. So I wanted to thank you for being inclusive.
1: Well, I'm so glad. Yes. Yeah. We just like to also be very prepared, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad that it works on on both sides of things, and so we appreciate that a lot. Yeah, yeah. and so will the listeners.
2: <laughs> if if you're listening and you employ anyone, consider offering these accommodations.
0: Yeah, I never thought about it as an interview thing, but I think that's brilliant. And why put somebody on the spot when they're already nervous or you don't know what's going on, right? Like, I think that's a really valid mm-hmm. thing to think about. And I, I feel like you're going to give us lots of things to think about in this interview. So let's start it off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Okay,
2: hi. <laughs> I am Aaron Ryan Heineman. I, I'll just say I live in Massachusetts, but I have not lived in Massachusetts my whole life. I, uh, I'm from the South Shore of Massachusetts. I now live on the North Shore. And I have two children. I'm a, mo- I'm a mom. I'm a former teacher. I taught in public and private education in the U.S., um, all kind of like... I started in Fairfax County, Virginia, and then I was at a private school in New York, and then I was in Massachusetts. So I've had a great teaching career. I taught for 13 years, and I was teaching high school English, Mm -hmm. which I absolutely loved. And I think that's one of the reasons that I enjoy your podcast so much, because it's diving deep into one subject Mm -hmm. um, that interests me. And I was having a kind of nice career as a teacher before i uh got really really sick in 2020 due to ms i, I had been diagnosed already at 17 oh, wow. and so this i was 35 when i had my major flare and that was two years ago so let's all do the math i'm 30 wait i'm 38 actually but it's because because <laughs> my birthday's in august and it's like so annoying when your birthday's in the middle of the year because you're two ages every year yes yes <laughs> right like it's annoying
1: it is annoying uh, i agree <laughs>
2: So I feel like those are the big things about me
1: What was it like to get that diagnosis and how did it change your life?
2: It was shocking It didn't change my life that much at 17 though So, um, what happened? I'll just really quickly what happened to Mm -hmm. me. So I've been having some issues with swallowing. Like I noticed when I, I was working at like a party store, I was like blowing up balloons. That was my job. Amazing. It was really fun. <laughs> Best job ever. Um, and I realized that I would, I would eat the Starburst on break. <laughs> like we would just eat all the candy. <laughs> and I was having a lot of trouble just like swallowing specifically Starburst. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And I would just, so I would just take a drink and it would be e- easier to swallow. And then I just stopped eating it for a little while. But then at the same time, I started to have something in my left eye um, and it was almost unnoticeable for the first like couple days. And then I really started to notice it. And the way I describe it, this is actually called optic neuritis. I did not know that at the time, but the way that I, I describe the feeling of optic neuritis, which might be helpful to listeners actually that are c- thinking about MS as a diagnosis is I describe my optic neuritis feeling as like, it's, you know, tissue paper that you put in like gifts or gift bags. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So picture piece of like dark gray or black tissue paper you put like one one piece over your eye over one eye mm-hmm. w- on one day, and then the next day you put another piece the next day another mm, piece oh the next wow. day another piece and so for like a week, two weeks it got progressively worse and all and wow. by the end of the two weeks, I could barely see out of my left eye i was I was definitely functionally blind I could not drive I was a senior in high school, so
0: oh.
2: I like was doing all those things that seniors in high school do, I had to stop playing tennis because my depth perception was totally gone. And those are the things I cared about. Those are things that were, were I was worried about when I had that diagnosis. Like, I can't play tennis anymore. My parents, I mean, were concerned. And so they took me to the eye doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I had told them about the swelling thing too, but they just wanted to, we just didn't know where to go, right? Yeah. Like my, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother did have multiple sclerosis, but nobody thought about it because I was so young. Mm-hmm. And that's, this was in 2002. So they took me to the eye doctor and, um, they, they shined a light into my eye. And apparently with option right they shined the light into my, into my pupil. And with normal people, it obviously gets small. Your pupil gets tiny when you shine mm-hmm. a light into it because there's light and like, it does it wants to like reject that light. It's too much light. But for me, it would get tiny for a second and then it would explode to like the size of my whole iris. Wow. And they called in other people from the, from the, um, ophthalmologist place. And they were like, look at this. This is the, this is like a, a a classic case of opt- optic neuritis. And I was like, excited to be like a medical like <laughs> thing. But then they were like, No, you, ha- you have to go to see a neurologist right away. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I had an MRI first, then I went to the neurologist. And based on my MRI and all and the symptoms that I had had, I got diagnosed. And I remember being it being really strange. I went with my mom, and then my dad came. And I was like, Why is dad here? Mm. And so I they didn't, my parents didn't really tell me what I was going in for. And I, and I, you know, I can't even really describe what, I mean, being 17, you're not thinking about things like this. Of course not. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I was shocked for that reason. And then on the way home, they were talking about, I remember the drive home, we were talking about how my grandmother had MS. And I was like, I didn't even know Nana had MS. Mm. I really didn't, really didn't, hadn't like thought about it. Um, She had passed away when I was nine from something totally different. And so... But I do remember her, you know, needing to like rest a lot. But that's mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was diagnosed, and it was surprising and shocking.
1: When we talked um, in advance of this interview, you did say that you know you kind of started to progress your life quicker. Like you started to do things and want mm. to do everything now. Yeah. So how did it change your timeline in terms of how you were thinking about things?
2: Hundred percent. I was already a kind of go-getter kid. I wanted to go to school in Washington D.C. I ended up going to George Washington, George Washington University. And so I was, had been applying for colleges and, and, you know, my, everybody, like my parents and and just people in my life were like, well, you should really stay close to home in Massachusetts because who knows what's going to happen with Mm your MS. And I was like, exactly. Who knows what's going (laughs) to happen? That's why I need to go there. That's why I need to do these things that I really want to do because it it almost felt like I, like a ticking, like a ticker started Mm -hmm, at that time, mm -hmm. at that moment. And every time throughout that, throughout like the, I guess eighteen years that followed, every single decision that I made, I think, was in some way um, affected by my knowledge that like, it it's probably going to get worse. I studied abroad when I was in college. I've traveled, been to Europe, into like places I might not have, I might not have done all those things if I had not known. I guess, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, even getting married and having kids, I was certain, um, that like, I, like, I wanted to have kids young. And when I met my husband, Peter, um, he's, he's almost 10 years older than me. And so he was at that stage in his life too, Mm -hmm. where it was not Mm -hmm. a weird thing for me to say that he was like, Oh yeah, I'm ready to settle down too. (laughs) Great.
1: "Great, Let's go. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And like, I mean, every time I did something like, because I was worried about time, it was like the right choice because then I have like two wonderful kids and they're eight and six. I don't think there's any way I would have been able to have children after the, after my flare. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess I I probably could have, but it was just the right choice to, mm. to do everything a little quicker.
1: You know, for people who are listening, what is MS <laughs> and yeah. how does it present?
2: Yeah, so multiple scler- sclerosis, so it means many scars, essentially. Mm, okay. It's like the, it's scars in your, scar tissue in your brain. And that happens because- when usually it's when a virus invades the body, the coating around the neurons is called the myelian sheath. Mm-hmm. And it's a fatty coating that like helps signals to send to each other quickly, you know, within mm-hmm. like, we're talking like fractions of a second. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and when a virus enters the body, when, when in people with MS, and I have to give a shout out to uh, the This Podcast Will Kill You because I, I learned I knew all this about MS, but I mean, listening to their episode about MS um, just gave me a much better understanding of, of my own disease. And mm-hmm. that was extremely helpful. So when a virus enters the body, your immune system, so it's an autoimmune, MS is an autoimmune condition. That means your immune system is affected somehow. So my immune system, when i when I got a virus, let's say at some point it flipped a switch kind of, and that turned on MS mm. for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's no real rhyme or reason to when the MS is when I'm going to have a flare, although it's like usually stress, they say, really mm-hmm. does affect every time I've ever had a flare. It's I've been in a stressful situation right. mm-hmm. before that. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So uh, when you're under stress, when you have MS, and what happens is your immune system Begins to think that your the the coating the myelin sheath those cells that make that up are in fact an invading virus. Oh,
0: okay. And
2: so they start to destroy them. Mm. Sometimes they like go wild and really cut into them, and, and that's actually what happened to me with mm. my major flare. So I had several like minor flares throughout the years, including like it's always my left side, but um, I had my left hand. I was like one time I was mashing the keyboard instead of typing, and mm. I was, it it, t- it took several months to come on. And then I got steroids for that, and that did help. After that has happened, and, and your body has decided, okay, actually, that's not an invading virus. We don't need to like keep attacking that. What ends up happening is, is scar tissue builds up okay. right yeah. where the thing had been, you know, eaten away. And so you can see that on an MRI. It's it, on an MRI. It shows up pretty clearly. You've got a lot mm-hmm. of scar tissue in your brain. Mm. And so that's and so, but you know, it's interesting because some people that have MS have. MRI's it littered with lesions and they I won't say normal I'll say like because I don't I don't want to be ableist but they're living the life of, of a not disabled person right. they're mm-hmm. they're not living a life of disability they're not experiencing tons of disability and there can be people with maybe one or two lesions that experience great disability mm-hmm. so there's a scale for it's called the EDSS I think it's a scale for the level of disability with MS okay many people have a hard time getting diagnosed because a lot of doctors take sort of a wait-and-see approach. Mm. Ooh, I I see you've been having this, and you do have one thing that looks concerning on your MRI, but we're just going to wait it out. But at least when I was diagnosed 20 years ago, the thinking at that time was, if they're showing strong signs of MS, which I was, Mm -hmm. then we need to get on medication right away, which I did. So when flares happen, the brain sort of heals itself. That's why it's called relapsing remitting, Mm, because- you go, you relapse and then you you have remission. Mm -hmm. So most people, the vast majority of people that have MS have relapsing remitting MS. Mm -hmm. And it's unclear to me, which if 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 I've progressed to secondary progressive yet, so you can get primary progressive, Mm -hmm. which is, um, you can be diagnosed usually this is later in life, like in your forties or fifties, or even sixties, if you present with MS, Usually it's like stronger mm. signals that is stronger, dis- stronger um, disabling effects, things like that. And that's a type called primary progressive, meaning like you- it hit you and it's not stopped. It's just like you keep getting hit with waves of flares, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And secondary progressive is when you had relapse and remitting first and then you uh, progress. Gotcha. And they do sa- they do say that like almost everyone with relapsing and remitting will progress to secondary within 20 years.
0: Oh, wow. Mm. You've mentioned your major flare-up a few times. Can you tell us, what is that? What happened?
2: Yeah. So what happened to me, I'll tell you f- first, that what happened to me is called a stroke-mimicking flare. It's also known as a catastrophic flare. It's stroke-mimicking because normally with MS, what happens is that, what I explained to you before, like over time, a couple weeks, a couple months, things will start to tingle, feel weird, and then you'll go to your doctor you'll say, hey, I think I'm having a flare. They'll get you on steroids, and that's kind of like how MS goes. Okay, yeah. But for me, a stroke mimicking flares, which are, I want to say they're extremely rare. So I Mm -hmm. don't want to, don't want to make anyone scared. But Mm -hmm. it was really rare occurrence. A stroke mimicking flare mimics a stroke in almost every way, including the fact that it happens quickly. Okay. So it was like six hours between when I started. I noticed I was. I always wear glasses. Um, I just got my eyes checked like six months before and I noticed with my glasses on, we were driving down, um, to see my parents in Cape Cod and I noticed that I couldn't read the street signs really well. And I was Mm. like, that is really strange. Mm. And I just chalked up to being tired. And then when I got there, I was, I had to write down like the dinner orders for people and I started to write it down and I couldn't write. I was writing, I was trying to physically trying to write and nothing. It was all looking just like squiggles. Okay. Mm. Yeah so knowing I had MS for that length of time, I knew I had MS since I was 17. So the first thought was this is an MS flare.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: And thank God it was because if it was a stroke, I would have been very dumb and not getting help right away immediate. Right. So I didn't get immediate help. I waited. And so we said, Oh, well, I'll, I said, I'll take a nap, but you guys, you know, go hang out and I'm just going to take a nap. Right. And I so I did that, and when I woke up, um, I didn't know it, but uh, the whole left side of my body, from like shoulders to like my to my toes, had gone completely paralyzed, become completely paralyzed. Wow! So I was on a bed, and I like kind of swung my body over to stand up, mm-hmm. and so putting both feet on the ground and having one foot be totally like not supporting me i just fell like kind of timber to the ground and i and i hit my head extremely hard on the way down on my dresser so i had a concussion as well at the very same time like a pretty severe concussion at the very same time Mm
1: -hmm. oh my goodness
2: so that is that's what happened my husband took me to the hospital we didn't even call an ambulance because we all know about my ms and -hmm. so we just Mm -hmm. kind of we all just have this like mindset of like okay it's ms like ms is not an emergency. Right? Mm. Except what it is kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was I feel like I I was not keeping up on my MS knowledge throughout the years enough. Um, I mm. wish I had done that. So I was hospitalized for a month. It was during twenty twenty, it was during um beginning of the pandemic. Oh, wow. you know, was it. Yeah. So it was in um June of twenty twenty. Went to Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, which is I mean, I can't say enough things about how incredible they were and Mm. how incredible they have been throughout Mm. i still go back to the hospitals for checkups and that was two and a half years ago wow that's great yeah i'm still seeing them for my shoulder everything um so swallowing is amazing they break it to you very lightly how long you're going to be there because my husband and i were both in we were very much in denial when it when i even got to the hospital the first time i mean to the first hospital because Mm -hmm. we were supposed to be visiting my parents with my kids and like We were like, okay, so we'll be out of here by like Tuesday, I think. I just, it was so hard to believe that when this is happening to a person, I guess that they must break it to you very softly, that you're going to be hospitalized for quite a while. Yeah, I remember them coming into my room and saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to talk about your discharge plan. And I was just like, okay. Why can't we talk about it now? And so they, yeah. And so then they said that that they expected me to be there for four weeks, and this is what I could expect with MS flares. The main, there's no cure for MS, and there's also no treatment. So mm. every drug is preventative. Okay. So okay. when you have a flare, like I'm describing, but the only treatment that most doctors get is steroids. Okay. Okay. So I was on a five day course of intravenous steroids. Well, I don't know if it, have you, either of you ever been on steroids before. I have but Heather
0: has. Yeah. I have.
2: Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was out of my mind. I felt like I wasn't even in my my own mind. I was just like, if someone mentioned the word child, I would just start like wailing because Mm. I was so upset to be like, because my kids couldn't visit. So Mm. because of COVID. So I was just like, I was just distraught. And I think that was mostly due to the steroids, but also Knowing later what happened to me and having concussion, post concussion system symptoms, like even five months later, mm-hmm. I think it was also because of the concussion. And I had something called pseudo bulbar affect as well for a few months. What is that? Pseudo bulbar affect is rare. Um, it, it can happen with MS, it can, but it can really happen with any neurological condition. And really, it's a psychiatric condition. I've heard of it described as sort of like what the Joker in the, oh, okay. ba- in the DC universe has. Like, actually, I had a phone call with my doctor today who described it as emotional incontinence, which I thought that was really funny. I was <laughs> like, "That's I like that better, actually. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. So it's terrifying. <laughs> yes. So you act differently in social situations. And also, if you find something sad, you can't stop crying. Mm, okay. And also if something's funny, you laugh inappropriately, okay. even if it's not that funny at all. Even if you just hear a word a funny way, yeah. you might just start like hysterically laughing and really not be able to stop. So that happened to me a couple of times. Like I couldn't breathe. It was scary. Like wow. it was, yeah. But when I got home from the hospital, I remember we watched the movie Homeward Bound with the dogs yeah. and the cat like, yeah. that have voices. <laughs> yeah. And it was a family movie. We were trying to like, you know, Deal with me being home and being different and being, you know, it was, we were trying to put all the pieces together. And when Chance, the part of the end, when Chance comes over the hill, and he's like, everyone thought he was gone for, yeah. and then like he's okay, and he comes over, and, and the cat is like, no, Chance. and like, I, I was, I was wailing. Oh. Like it was, it was so loud. Like it was very loud, and I really scared my kids. Like, they, and my kids won't let us watch that movie ever oh. again. Oh, no. Like I really scared them. That also just kind of goes into the fact that like the flare affected my entire life. I basically consider my life now before. I mean, kind of it's weird because everybody does this, yeah. but yeah. I consider my life before my flare, yeah, before June 2020, and then after, right? Mm. So it was a major traumatic event. Everybody in my family experienced trauma mm-hmm. from that event. So yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, it's very hard,
1: very hard. And yeah. so, what were some of the key things you know both i think positive and negative that impacted your recovery after that flare up and when you came home?
2: Thank you for asking that. It's actually both a positive and a negative. When I came home from the hospital, they had given me and, and this is not to this is not on my hospital at all they They had given me lots of literature about what you might expect this is merely because I had a stroke mimicking flare that is extremely rare mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there's not a lot even clinicians don't know how to really help you that much because they're like is it stroke is it stroke stuff that's going to help you is it you know so I found r- out really really quickly that I was going to have to do a lot of the learning myself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was going to have to take a ownership of my my recovery I didn't realize how much it would be like entirely like self-ownership but mm-hmm. I did like I did feel very strongly that I could get better so this is one of the positives so when I was in the hospital before before I came home I, I was searching I mean this is an ungoogleable thing like you cannot google I had su- I, I had an ms flare that made me paralyzed it's just, you'll find one, two articles, maybe one first person narration thing. And it's just, it was impossible at that time to find mm. information. Yeah. So like, I am a true millennial and like child of the internet. And I just, I just went sleuthing. What happened to me with MS and this rare flare is like, it actually is very um, universal to anyone who's had an injury to their brain. So TBI, concussion, stroke anything that anyone who's had a brain injury can probably relate. I just searched, um, Instagram was the Facebook was that was, was helpful because I was already in a group for people with MS that are like about my age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember one day in the hospital, I, I just wrote a post and the post was something like, Hey, I just experienced this thing. I'm in the hospital. I'm paralyzed. on one side. Um, has this happened to anyone? How long did it take you to get better? And I was just, I put it into like the, world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't expect, I, I felt like it was the rarest thing that ever happened. So and from all that Googling, I just didn't think anyone would respond. And like, I would say within like, half a day, I had like 10 responses. And by the next day, I'd had almost 20. Wow. Like, oh, wow.
0: That's great. And
2: so yeah, it was amazing. Like so many people, they just shared so mm. much about their own experiences. And they shared that they were better. They spoke so kindly to me. And they said, you know, you're in a really hard spot right now. Like just listen to your PTs, listen to your OTs, do what they tell you to do. Do not give up on yourself. Do not give up. So like I understood paralysis to be sort of a permanent thing. And yeah. so I had a very poor understanding of paralysis or paralyzing conditions. And so even when my OT would say, oh yeah, we expect you to have, you know, pretty good recovery. I was like, yeah.
0: excuse me, how? But how? Yeah. Yeah. Like,
2: yeah. I literally like, I can't, move anything like and I'm and I'm trying to like how Mm -hmm. can you say that Mm -hmm. so but it was once I heard from these patients that had the same thing happen to them it energized me I was like oh my god you can get better and Mm -hmm. so there's something about the like interpersonal connection with other people that just like has fueled me the entire time even like still today But now I'm in the position. I have answered people now. (laughs) I have been the answerer, and that is the greatest feeling in the world. Yeah. So one side of your body paralysis is called hemiplegia, like hemisphere, Yeah. Mm -hmm. like left or right. Mine was the left, and I am left-handed, so it made everything a little bit more difficult. Mm. But there's also reasons that I'm happy it was the left, because I can drive with the right. I Mm. was able to drive much more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to write with my right hand. Searching the hashtags for stroke and even like stroke mimicking flair got some things. But I found a huge community of stroke survivors on Instagram Mm. who were sharing their progress and their recovery. And once I was home from the hospital, I was just like on those all the time, like looking at people's videos, what they did. One thing that I feel like is sort of a negative about having something like this happen and, and it being a very rare occurrence, I had to have PT and OT in my house mm-hmm. at first because I couldn't leave the home. I couldn't yeah. I couldn't get into a car. Mm-hmm. But when I started going to outpatient, I would have one hour with them per, per week. Oh, wow. So the way I described it is like for my situation, physical therapy was for the legs mm-hmm. and um, occupational therapy was for the arm or, and also some, and the activities of daily living, right. which yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know what the activities of daily living were until I had that flare. And it said ADL on my chart one day. And I said, what's that? And they were like, oh, that's the activities of daily living. Just like what you need to do to, to be alive. I yeah. I, I know Sorry that to...
0: because I broke both my wrists. And so oh th- that's what I learned. And I was like, oh, yeah, how am I going to go to the bathroom? So, yeah, you like <laughs> you don't think about those things until they're taken away. Right. Yeah, exactly. You can, it's, it's you can open the, the doorknob. Yeah, I couldn't get into my house. There's so many things that you don't think about until.
2: So there's so yeah. many things that you don't think about, and even like I, I still to this day like you can see like I'm wearing a uh uh, uh what do you call this collar like a crew neck, crew neck. Yeah, I I remember you know when I was in occupational therapy trying to put on shirts with having one arm just completely completely limp. Mm-hmm. They forced me to do that every day, and it sounds like I don't mean that in the sense that like they were being too hard on me. I mean like it it was correct to do that. So they had me put on my own clothes every day and learn how to do it because there's no guarantee that I would get my arm back. Right. Yeah. And so they had to teach me how to do it. And so my uh, husband brought a ton of V-neck shirts that were like very large. So that, so that it'd be easier for me to just kind of like fall into them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I will not wear a V-neck, mm. like never nope. again, kind of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fair. I think how you're contributing to back to the community, like sharing your story, writing about your story, advocating for disability. I think what you're doing is amazing. FYI. <laughs> yeah, Thank I think you. it's really great.
1: Erin is on TikTok and, yes. and well, all the platforms, really. You really do talk a lot about what you're experiencing and also just talking about what's happening in the media and really contributing to giving a first person perspective to an area that we don't get to hear a lot about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Because like, that's literally, I mean, I remember being in the hospital and thinking, if I get through this, if I survive, if I don't get COVID because of this, you know, so there's always that specter over me. So I just remember thinking like, if I survive and make it home and COVID doesn't kill everyone, that's what, that was what I was thinking at that time. <laughs>
0: yeah. We were all thinking um, that, I think, at that
2: time. Yeah. I felt that like I had had a missed opportunity like for myself and not researching my own condition mm. more. When mm. I was, when I was for the ages of 17 to 35, I didn't once look into it. I was too, too busy. I guess I was angry at myself for that. Mm. I really was. And so I thought in the hospital, like I need to like reach people mm. who this might have happened to. Um, and, and it took a while for me to even like really put that together. The first thing that I did was start a TikTok account because Instagram had helped me so much. And I just really liked the TikTok platform. Like, I mm-hmm. liked the video editing better on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just nicer. And I felt like I could be more creative with it. And so I've had that for, I mean, almost two years now, I think, um, mm. which is wild because it's a pretty young platform. And I share, uh, I, I intended to share more like regularly about it and more about like, this is how I got better because I thought I was getting better. It turns out that I actually wasn't so I had all these dreams when I was in the hospital. It's like I'm going to ma- I'm going to make sure that like I write a book and everybody knows about like what happens and how I got better, how I d- how I did it, because once I had the the idea in my head that I was going to get better, it was almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. I've never gone after anything harder than I did mm. my recovery. Mm. For many months, I was like, yeah, I'm doing it, I'm getting better, I need mm-hmm. to tell people about it, and, I- and so I cringe sometimes when I look back at things that I wrote or what I said to people or did because. I th- a lot of it was based on internalized ableism. So I was in a wheelchair at one point, and then I was not in a wheelchair. I was using a uh, walker at one point. Now, now I, I don't, but I still do use it sometimes because it's, it's really helpful to have a, you know, a, a seat sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I bought into, the, into what society sells us about, like, getting better health-wise means, like, physically looking, physically being physically better. Right. So... Mm-hmm. I made videos about it and stuff. And was like, oh, yeah, well, this is how I did it. And they are honestly really helpful to people still, like some of the videos, because people that are in the same position as me as they have commented, like, thank you for just showing me that it can be done.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The,
2: but the thing that I wish I'd realized is that, like, I will be dealing with this forever. And, I, and it took me a long time to realize that mm. because I had so much backsliding right. when my concussion symptoms popped up like three months into my recovery. And all of a sudden mm. I couldn't see straight. Right.
0: What was that shift in thinking when you were like, wait a minute, I'm kind of looking at it this in an ableist way, where I'm like, the ultimate goal is I need to be able to be 100 percent back to the way I was prior to my flare up. What what shifted for you?
2: Honestly, it was reading Kate Bowler's book, Everything Happens for a Reason, and Other Lies I've Loved, mm. and also listening to Kate Bowler's podcast, fellow Canadian um, <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> I kind of understood being an English teacher and and I would also teach about like how the media affects us and things like Mm -hmm. that. So I like, I knew this stuff, but I didn't know it specifically about like wellness culture Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so hearing Kate Bowler talk about those things completely shifted my view of, Mm -hmm. and, and it was over a long time because I read the book. I went back and back listened to her whole podcast. And so that took almost a year. Right. At the beginning of my recovery, I was, you know, I would say I was only up out of my bed for like, Four hours a day, oh, wow. yeah, and then like increasingly, it got you know I could be up more and more until like now I'm I'm I pr- pretty much I'm up as everyone else is up, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. But I was listening to Kate Buller's podcast and um, reading what she's put out, and then sort of listening to the disability community as well on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, and and lo- looking into disability studies. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was literally teaching. At the time, of my flair, like all the different lenses that you can apply to literature, like uh, a Marxist lens or a, um, you know, uh, a feminist lens, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't realize that you could apply a disability yeah, lens yeah. Mm-hmm. to things. And so it's taken a long time. I can still fall into the trap of, you know, ableist beliefs. So this is the thing, though, with MS and with multiple, I and it's not specifically just MS, but because MS is such a strange, di- strange disease that, like, you get you have a flare, but then you get better. Right, Yeah, and mm-hmm. all you don't usually have to even do anything to get better; it just happens automatically. Mm. So I've looked into a lot of the, the history of MS as well. There's something that like you, you, you actually can fight against MS. Like you can fight against the disability that has happened to you. And f- for me, the reason that I keep doing that the reason that i keep trying this physical stuff keep trying to keep my physical body better is because i want to stay as physically able as i can so i can prolong my life yeah Mm -hmm. so that like i can be with my kids for longer yeah
0: for sure yeah yeah and i think i think it's important to hear you say that because it you know looking at things from a an ableist lens but also, like, you're allowed to be a human who wants to live a long life, right? Yeah. And you yeah. can still live with a disability and still strive to be someone who lives a long life and is with their family. And I think yeah. sometimes we might lose sight of that. And all of these different things that we as humans deal with, like, we look at diet culture, we look at all this different stuff where it's like, mm-hmm. well, I want to be, I want to have a healthy body so that I can live a long life. But it doesn't mean that we need to, you know, dismiss the other aspects of what we're living through anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Like being um, yeah, I want to be healthy is really the thing and with when you have MS being healthy is being active. Yeah. It is it is pushing against what the disease is trying to do to you. Yeah. And so it's kind of difficult in the disability community because um, there are many disabilities that you that are not they're not like subject to your fighting against it. Yeah. And so it can be it's a really fine line to share about my disability. And, and, and so I often will put things like what happened to me and my, my recovery from paralysis is totally different than someone who has a traumatic injury yeah. to their spine. Yeah. Which is, a—it's uh, uh, again, not necessarily permanent, but is, is a lot longer of a road yeah. to a recovery. You don't have to walk again. It's okay. Like, you can, mm-hmm. like...
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, you know Yeah, um, yeah.
2: And I, I just... And there's so much inspiration. Well, the the term, the inspiration porn. Yep. There's <laughs> yes. so much of, like, look at this person. I was that, kind of. It's like, look at me. I was just, like, I was, you know... Was in a a wheelchair and like now I'm walking like look at this you know I just I feel bad that I that I did that but Mm. I feel I do understand why Mm -hmm. because it was so it was just such a part of me yeah just because it's a part of really just kind of it's just a cultural Mm -hmm. that's why it's you know ableism just it's I I don't I don't love the term ableism because I think it scares people I think Mm -hmm. people get frightened that like oh I'm not just the same way racism oh I'm not racist well it's like Right, you're, you might not be actively racist, but if you're white like me, you're benefiting from a mm-hmm. society that is built on racism, yeah, exactly. right? You're benefiting from a world that does that caters to people like you who are able-bodied. 100, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, right? Like, and, yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that there is something to be said. There is a gentleman by the name of David Radcliffe who is part of the WGAW's Disabled Writers Committee, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said we are all at some point going to be disabled in some capacity as we age, we mm-hmm. will. Yeah. And the fact that we don't think that the world should be inclusionary and accessible, he's like, well, then we're not preparing for our future. Plus, we should be, you know, inclusive and accessible. But instead, we kind of, oh, that's someone else.
0: Yeah. Until yeah. it affects okay. you. Yeah.
1: And so there's something in that we're like, well, you know, it doesn't take a lot more. To make that change, part of our podcast is talk about representation in films and television and even books. And so, you know, what have you seen or heard that deal with MS and strokes in an accurate way?
2: I haven't read a ton of literature that is based on a character that has a disability that has specifically MS. Mm -hmm. So the the most famous TV show of a character with MS is um, The West Wing. And uh, the whole thing of The West Wing is that... Okay, help me with his name, President Bartlett.
1: Yes, Jed Bartlett. Yeah,
2: Je- exactly, Jed Bartlett. Um,
1: I love, yeah. I love West Wing. Okay. <laughs> I was like, so you I talked to the
0: right. I, I, I'm gonna have to step out of this conversation. I did not watch the West Wing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I rewatch it whenever there is an election
1: in the U.S. Mm, just so that yeah. I can get pumped. Okay, feel like something will happen.
2: So the choice to put the person who is literally the president to, ha- to have him have multiple sclerosis is was is a great is an amazing choice. Yeah. Right. I'm so happy that they did that. And my only wish for that really is that for the, that show is that they had sh- showed a little bit more subtleties of his disability because it really felt like occasionally in an episode or two, you know, he would drop something or things like mm. that. But it really, to me, boiled down to a few episodes where, where they were like dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And when you have MS, it's more like your whole life. It's just all these little things. It's not just like, one episode or one day where you just deal with it. (laughs) Although in my case, it kind of was for that, uh, that one hard day. Um, but I was just so glad that they put him in the position of power and like, because people that have MS generally, you know, are are able to, to participate in society in a way beyond their wildest dreams, like become president. Right. That's great. Yeah. And I keep thinking about John Fetterman too, who in the U.S. I S I don't know if you've been following that situation. Yeah. In Pennsylvania. He had a stroke, I want to say it's less than six months since his stroke. Yeah. And and so like, I think of myself at six months out, I was like feeling incredibly unmoored in my body. Um, I don't think that, I mean, in strokes are, are, are very different because there are people that have strokes that can recover very quickly. It, it right. depends on how quickly yeah, you act. Yeah. So if you're having a stroke, if you think someone's having a stroke, remember that to like... The, f- the faster you act, you the the more you're going to preserve like function things like right. that. But that has been it's not real it's not fictional, but it's been interesting to to watch that happen. Um, and I think people are really kind of getting more understanding about strokes, and especially with the speech issues that he was having.
1: Yeah, and that he needed a teleprompter to do cal- closed captioning so that he yes. could read what was being said because he was having a hard time with hearing things. So that he needed to have that. So
2: I have a huge question behind the choice to have it be a standing debate. Before the before my um, major flair, I understood multitasking to mean like on the phone, waiting for someone, like making my kids dinner and like also like, you know, watering plants and like, you know, doing many things at well, once. You know, people love to talk about yeah, multitasking. Totally. <laughs> right. But when I had my flair and when, you know, in the months after it, multitasking was standing up and talking to another person. Hmm. or standing up and making a sandwich. And, and I yeah. remember making a tuna sandwich one time, and my daughter came in, and she was about she was six at the time. She was like, Mommy, and she really needed my attention. And I looked at her, and my, he- my head, I would get brain fog. I would get a buzzing in my, th- in my brain when I was doing too much multitasking. Uh-huh. And I looked at her, I said, I'm so sorry, honey, but I can't talk to you right now. I need to finish this before uh, this sandwich before I can talk to you, and then, and, and then I'm going to sit down and talk with you. But at that point, and still today, um, sitting down is such. I'm sitting down right now. I could not have had this conversation standing up. There's no way. That's so interesting. Yeah. There's a possibility that John Fetterman's own team, through no fault of their own, besides not understanding the severity and and implications of like a sensory disability mm-hmm. wanted to say, Hey, look at him. He's fine. He's, He's fine. standing up. He's okay. He's recovered. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I wouldn't have known that even when I was going through it, it was so, so this is all happening to him and his family and his team at one time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there, so when this happens to somebody, like to anyone, it happens to their whole family, their whole circle. Yeah. And so you all learn mm-hmm. at the same mm-hmm. time because it's the type of thing that we don't, like we had said before, it's not something that we talk about very much at all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But we need to start to be aware of, or at least like ask those questions of how do you work in your most optimal yes. way?
2: Yeah,
1: And that's to me the question that we need to ask everybody yeah. so that it doesn't fall on the person who is disabled to have to always ask for like ask for things and to ask for inclusion, but that we create yeah. spaces that just inherently are built for inclusion, yeah. that they are like, okay, what is useful for everyone? So maybe you have to leave for childcare at 4 p.m and so we can only work till 4 p.m. Maybe you need an environment that doesn't have bright overhead lights. I prefer no (laughs) neon lights over my head. I will like live through it, but I work better when it's not so bright and garish. Same. I just know that that's going to help me. And there's all these little things that actually don't create a lot of cost or a lot of, there's not a lot of difficulty in it. It's just asking the question. And I think that we need to start to ask the question more. We all have needs and we should all not have to feel the pressure of asking for them and feeling like we are creating burden because for me, that's how I feel. And and it's hard to uncouple myself from feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to learn how to feel differently, but we are being kind of taught as society not to ask for what we need because we are a burden then. And so it puts the idea of asking for inclusion with a disability as being a burden when it should never be looked at as such.
2: It's reminded me of the idea that like, so in teaching, I was always a fan of universal design for learning. Universal design for learning is simply the concept that like you can create lessons that are differentiated in all different ways. So there's, there's visual for visual stuff for visual learners, auditory learners, hands-on learners. Every student should be able to access the content. And it's the same thing with universal design for spaces mm. that are public spaces, um, right? And we can—I would consider so many things the, the public space, right? Yeah. One of the most, like I guess, universal tools like accessibility tools. So so many things in just like modern day culture are somewhat poo-pooed. What I'm thinking about is um, cut up gross, cut up fruits in the fruit section of the grocery store, and I've heard those ma- people make fun of those for like, oh, so lazy. Like, why would you need that? And I mean, I, I do not cook anymore for any, in real, any real way. Um, and so like whenever I bring something to an event, it's never homemade. And I, and I do feel like this kind of, I still feel like this pressure that like, oh, I'm not being a good enough mom to my kids because I can't make any homemade food. But one of the things that is like the most vital design choice that is, and tool is, is literally the pop socket.
0: On the back of your phone. Yeah.
2: This creates accessibility because I, for very, for, you know, let's say six weeks longer than that, because I, you know, it didn't come back all at once. I could only use my phone one handed. Um, and my phone's unwieldy. It's big. It's one of those big Apple phones. So it's like, but because of that, I could access all those message boards and all those Facebook places and like get that, you know, so like accessibility is like so beautiful when it works. You were asking about, like, more things in the media that portray MS and things. like So honestly, the, the what I've found is the most helpful is to watch actual people that have MS display their MS. And um, for, the first place, like, that I would start with that is actually the podcast I mentioned, which is called This Podcast Will Kill You, and it's a scary name. But um, the, on that MS episode, they talked a lot about the history of MS. People have been getting MS since there's a saint in the 1400s that, like, she was called the skating saint and she'd fall while she was skating all the time and then like then she was better and so like because she was healed right like then people would go to her to be to be healed oh, cool. kind of, that's, kind of, that's <laughs> kind of
1: cool oh interesting she had remitting and reoccurring yeah. re- and remitting and yeah.
2: yeah so so but they told me about this guy that wrote they're the first um, written history. The first, th- this is a, tr- I'll hold it up. It's called the Journal of a Disappointed Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Journal of a Disappointed Man. I, can't, I cannot think of a better <laughs> title for something written by somebody with MS. And e- this is, I think it's 18, uh, it's in the 1800s, late 1800s. And um, it's just his diary. He expected it to be published posthumously. And it was. I was simply blown away by how closely his symptoms mimicked my, and his feelings too. He mm-hmm. said like, oh, damn it!" He says da- one, one entry says like, "Damn it, damn it, damn it! I can't write. Oh. I just want to feel a pen again." Oh. He didn't have a typewriter, so like, right, yeah, like,
1: right. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm like going like further back um, in history and just seeing all these people connecting throughout the throughout time. Mm. Because of their illnesses, our, sh- our shared illness, right? Yeah. Like, so seeking out anything by authors with disabilities yeah, mm-hmm. um, to me is just like so powerful. Like, disability visibility um, by Alice Wong or edited by Alice Wong. There's just so many pieces, and, and even just essays like by people with disabilities mm-hmm. is just so helpful to read. So for patients like myself, w- we don't see ourselves represented on screen very much. Mm-hmm. There's actually a whole um, the whole thing in disability theory about about the, um, it's called the narrative prosthesis. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that, like, okay, so it says, um, disability pervades the literary narrative, and that would include TV and film. Literary discourse is primarily twofold, as a stock feature of characterization, and second, as an opportunistic metaphorical device. Mm -hmm. We term this perpetual discursive dependency upon disability narrative prosthesis. So it's the idea that the the Disney villain has a wonky eye, And the other villain uses a wheelchair and, or alternatively that the heroine is in distress because she's weak. Mm -hmm. Mm. And, you know, it's this, this concept of like, so it's in a, so disability actually features in prom, not, not prominently, it features as a tool Mm. in many narratives, including film and television.
1: Yeah. Or or that thing, the inspiration porn of you know, we talked about where they get better and it's a miracle and isn't this wonderful? And that now they're now they can walk again. They are. Around. And I'm going to say this quote unquote normal again because yeah, that is that's what the message. they're yeah. that's the message yeah. they're sharing. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. So when it comes to representation on TV and film, I don't feel like we've gotten we have gotten somewhere, but um, we haven't gotten so far mm-hmm. beyond yet. I mean, there's movies like Coda, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's so like incredible in terms of. Uh, disability representation. I see the industry getting better and I'm um, you know excited for the future of that of that um but the the person who I think that has most affected me and other people with MS is is Selma Blair. Yeah. And her 2018 diagnosis.
1: Yeah. And you wrote recently about Selma Blair. Tell us more about that.
2: There are a lot of celebrities that have MS. Um both like just stars, like movie stars, and also just kind of like people in the media that have MS. And, you know, so, you know, I know of many people, I know Christina Applegate, um, Jack Osborne, um, Neil Cavuto is like a a talk show host here. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just many people that have MS in in popular culture, I guess. And having MS and having like a platform is such Mm -hmm. an opportunity to be able to share about that. Um, And I, I had not seen somebody, somebody actually go through with that and really use their platform to showcase the specifics. Right. I've never seen it. And, and once I saw Selma Blair's document. so the documentary that she did before, that she did is called um, Introducing Selma Blair. And Rachel Flight is the person who um, who directed mm-hmm. it. And Rachel Flight herself has a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. The choices that f- the director Flight makes in that film are so were so just like, it was like soothing mm-hmm. to watch it for me. Mm-hmm. Selma Blair must have obviously gave permission for this, right? So she she is, was included in this too, like showed herself in these moments that many people would think of as weakness. It shows the fear that she has about some of the treatments she was taking because she did get a, a pretty experimental treatment that involved like getting a chemotherapy. And so she got really weak and really thin. And I've gotten really weak and really, really thin um, unintentionally. And I know what that's like. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like for people to say you look amazing and Mm. I'm like, I'm extremely sick. Mm -hmm. Just seeing all of that is just was incredible for me. And so my parents have been dancing with stars fans, probably for all 31 seasons, like (laughs) they're super fans. And so they were the ones that told me that she was going to be on it on. And I was like, well, I'm going to watch this. I'm definitely watching it. Um, And so I actually started writing my piece at the beginning of the show. She's on this live show, again, not being able to speak because she just danced, not being able to, you know, um, I see her arm flailing a lot. To see somebody else whose arm flails, I just like, I just want to hug her because like my arm just does whatever it wants. I have the same specificity that she has, and like one there's one point um, during the show where like her her dance partner Sasha Faber says like, oh well, we're gonna need to work on <laughs> we're gonna need to work on that knee knee flexion or something. I was like, oh my god, like I was like this man doesn't even know what he's talking about. Like that's the most difficult thing for me. Yeah. And most people that have had like uh, something called foot drop mm-hmm. and it, 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 it's called foot drop. It shouldn't be, it should be called foot, not lift up because <laughs> <laughs> because the problem is not your foot is dropping. The problem is that you, you kind of like do slam your foot down, but that's not the problem. The problem is that when you go into the swing phase, you can't lift your foot up fast enough to, to clear like a curb I see. Oh, or anything. Yeah. So you trip. Um, and that is actually all controlled weirdly in your knee mm. area. So so when he said that about like oh we need to work on our knees, I was like, like, dude, like good luck. Because <laughs> that is the hardest thing like you just told her like to do the hardest thing possible. Mm-hmm. I just knew I had to write about it. It never ever seemed to me that she was doing it to be inspiration porn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. To me and, and that's really hard to do. Yeah. It's really hard to be a celebrity to be somebody coming back from an illness or, or being in the middle of an illness and and really not have, like people would say to her, you're such an inspiration or on the show. And, but she did not like, it, it didn't seem to me ever that she was kind of going for that. And the fact that she left the show because of her bones, because of her, the the chemotherapy she had gotten. Mm. Right. So she wasn't able to continue when she, when she left the show, I was more shocked than anyone. No, sorry, I wasn't more shocked than anyone. I was just like, of course she's leaving the show. Of course she is. It was incredible that she could do it at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote about it, I wrote about Selma Blair. Is I wanted to tell people, to really tell people what she was going through from an MS perspective, from a perspective of somebody that also has MS, mm-hmm. because I think she kind of got, it got a little bit misunderstood in the media. Oh, it's like, oh, it's too bad. She has MS complications. And that's all they said. And it's in most articles. And that bothered me because. What she did was so um it was such a like it was like her Everest, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and for for reasons that are so subtle and so difficult to even like comprehend, that like I wanted people with the have that have MS or that have people with MS in their lives to like to see it, to see it through my eyes too. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And for hopefully like a general audience to see that. And so when I wrote it, I was just like I just need to get this into the world.
1: Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with before we say goodbye?
2: The best advice I ever got is actually, fr- so I talk a lot about um, internet culture and how the internet has helped me so much. And it's from a Reddit user um, who posted it. And they, and they posted it a couple of years ago on the, on, on the, on the MS sub. And it says, uh, it, she, they posted um, the best advice i ever received. And they were like, someone, when I was first diagnosed years ago, they told this to me. And I'm posting it here for you. And I saved it. And um, the, their Reddit username, I'll give them credit, is ECA. ECA maintenant. So they're clearly like French or French-Canadian or something. It. It's like a... Yeah. So um, this is the quote. It's, only give to MS the bare minimum. If MS takes your foot, let it go. But don't give it your joy as a bonus. Oh, and that's like... Oh. Yeah. Like... I love that. That's such hard advice to follow, and the like the resources. Like, I would say number one is um, join your community, join communities online mm-hmm. to the extent possible, and share. And, and even if you don't, even if you don't feel comfortable sharing, just like search and read, and you're going to find so many people that have experienced the same thing as you. Which, like, that was like that's been my lifeline. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is uh, just a ton of my, a ton of my physical recovery actually. I had to use, I used resources like YouTube and there's this one physical therapist on YouTube. I'm, I'm saying this because she, I know she's accredited because she actually went to Spalding. She work, started at Spalding where I went. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> yeah. And her name is Dr. Tara Tobias and uh, her, I guess her business name is Rehab HQ. Um, and she is amazing for all types of brain injury re- rehab. So physical rehabilitation from brain injury of all types. And I can't tell you how many times I've watched her videos over and over because she explains things so well. And the part problem for me, I needed I I needed to understand everything about why why it was happening to me and how I could make it fix it. And she does that. So Ter- Dr. Tara Tobias on YouTube and, ver- and and on Instagram as well. Disability visibility is a really good hashtag mm-hmm. as well as. Um, it's hashtag crypt the vote it's really just for anybody with a disability or, or discussing disability because mm-hmm. this i mean all politics is local and all politics is local to your body too mm-hmm. as we now know mm-hmm. as we have known forever but really yeah. the disability community has known that for a long yeah. time and most policy decisions are affect people with disabilities out you know more than any, more than they affect anyone else so those two hashtags have been really incredibly helpful for me and okay so i'm on. Pretty much every social media channel and my name is Aaron Erin Ryan Hey, like H E Y, like Hey, what's up? <laughs> um Hey. <laughs> so i Aaron Ryan Hey on like TikTok and also on Instagram and also on Twitter. But yeah, I'm on medium. That's my medium name too. Okay,
1: cool. Yeah. Just thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, for you know, reaching out in the first place. I was so happy that you wanted to talk with us. So thank you. Oh my god. Yes.
2: Thank you.
0: I really enjoyed speaking with Erin and getting even deeper insight to what MS is and how it shows up and how it affects people's lives. Mm -hmm. I didn't know much about MS until Selma Blair came out and started talking about it. And I saw all these different like symptoms that she was having. And like, I, and I started, I I must've read, I started, maybe I started like looking into it to understand what it actually is. And yeah, man, I'm so glad that Erin is out here in the world sharing her story I think she's going to really affect a lot of people's lives.
1: I think so, too, because I think it's you know more common than we know or think about. Yeah. And it's so good to have that representation because even though chronic illnesses are all different, mm-hmm. to be able to have someone so visible with a chronic illness, this idea of like, I want to, you know, seeing that video well I'll put in the show notes I think there's like a video clip of just her last dance but also her talking to her dance partner about I need to be with my children I need to I have to choose who I can spend time with and I'd rather spend I need to spend time with my family yeah and making that choice and it's you know incredible to to sit and go okay what is my priority right now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she's like I've been able to do this and it's really special and wonderful but it's hurting me and it's taking away from the rest of my life and my quality of life. And yeah, yeah, it felt empowering to see that and to see someone being so vulnerable. And I think so representative of so many people who maybe feel unable to speak up when they need to take those breaks and totally, to yeah. be kind to themselves, because yeah. they're being told by society, no, you have to like push on and do well yeah. and get, get better. get better. And I'm like, there's a lot of things yeah. you never, you can't get better from. And then you just are. And it's like, how do you balance that? And there's a woman who is in my respectability lab. And we had a call one day where they were, we're going to talk and just catch up. And she said, well, I can't attend because the day before she had gone trick-or-treating with her kids. And she, she's like, I don't have the idea of spoons. I have no spoons left. Right. Like I, Mm I, I can't, I can't do this tonight because I did that yesterday. Yeah. And I think it's like for us, we're like, oh, no worries. Like that's totally cool. But that's because she, we're kind of a safe space for her to say that. And it mm-hmm. can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I've had that too, where I'm having burnout because in, you know, my hyperactivity and my like whole being drives me to do more and more and more and more yeah. Yeah. that I don't want to tell people, I just can't do something tonight. I just have to like, I've been overstimulated. and I need a break and it's hard you want to. So basically, like, I just feel like I end up becoming... <laughs> it's like a string of lies but not like big lies but like, no, like you're oh, like, oh I have I'm, this thing I have or... too much work I often it yeah. will say oh work I use work as an excuse all the time I so everyone's like thing. oh I'm so sorry I know you're busy I know you have work and I'm like uh like I do yeah. a lot of work and I do often do that or if I can't be with you I can be alone with my computer because there's no it's the simulations level is different but
0: yeah yeah well and I like I know I have one friend that Will actually utilize her mental health days at work if she's starting to feel stressed or amazing run down. She'll take her mental health day, and that's like, what they're there for. And she talks about it all the time, and I'm like, oh, that's so amazing that yeah. well that her company allow like offers mental health days, and that she's actually taking them and mm-hmm. allowing herself to have a recharge day. I, as a freelancer, do not allow myself to do those things, and I think I need to. I'm I'm learning to get better. I'm right. I'm talking with a new therapist, and they're really good about asking me like, is that something you have to do? Or is that something that your anxiety is telling you that you are responsible for? Yeah, I'm like, becoming way more aware of how much I give that isn't expected of me. Yeah. Another thing we're working on is, you know, I I check my email all the time. And I don't always respond to my email, but I'm always checking it, which means I'm always thinking about work or what's next to come. And so I've like, kept I was, i've been this past couple of weeks been keeping track of how many times i check my email at night and and my therapist like well do you need to check it at all i was like no probably not like nothing is pressing for me to respond to yeah and so by not checking it i'm noticing my anxiety level drop because i'm not constantly reactivated to think about all the things i need to do the next day right it's not the same as like having ms but we do have to allow ourselves to take those times with what's good for our bodies and our brains.
1: But it's also, that's part of your, that's, it is part of the disorder that you have too, that like exacerbates. I was watching something. I often now get fed ADHD content all the time, which is fine by me. But one person said, think of your brain (laughs) as your employee. And if you treated your employee like that, wouldn't they quit too? And this idea of like, (laughs) (laughs)
0: like, Oh yeah, I love
1: it. Taking breaks and, um, yeah. you know, bringing donuts on Friday. <laughs> like, oh, yeah.
0: like like not letting kind. your employees sleep. No, you yeah. must, you must read all that. You must yeah. make a list. <laughs> and, like, and no knowing, sleeping alone. Yeah, exactly. It's been this real journey of exploring generalized anxiety disorder, which I'd never like, I was just officially diagnosed with it. So it's like this journey of like really understanding what it is and how much mm-hmm. anxiety is present in my life where I thought maybe it, you know, I That's thought how it, is. it was, yeah, I thought everybody felt that way. And I'm starting to learn like, Oh, oh, okay. So like this one interaction I might've had with somebody, I think about it for four days where my husband would just like, it happen and it be gone. Right. Yes. So yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> this last few months has been a journey for me.
1: Well, that's why like um, often anxiety lives hand in hand with things like ADHD. Like I don't have anxiety, but I do have some rumination or yeah. it's really more about you have that playback because you're always analyzing. Like, did I do it right in that situation? Yeah. What did I do wrong? Because you're always thinking that you're wrong. Yeah. So you never think that anyone else. Like you, 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 never don't think. Oh, collectively we may not have like gelled, or like you're always putting it back it's on your yourself fault, because yeah. you've been told that for so long. And so to unpack that, and it, I think
0: that it's hard for you and I also because we have tra- tra- trauma.
2: <laughs> yes. There
0: is that part of it too. Those moments where you are constantly like, did I, did I go the wrong way? Did I say the wrong yeah. thing? It's because there is this trauma around it. So.
1: Yeah. And oh, there's I'm something called um, yeah rejection sensitivity disorder, yes. <laughs> which I 100% have, um, which is part of ADHD, where yeah. you often feel feelings in a big way. We've talked about this before, where you feel big feelings more so than the feelings may actually warrant. But that doesn't mean that that's not d- diminishing what you feel. It's just understanding to uncouple it from the situation. You can't say, oh, my feeling's so big. So the situation must be so big. It's like, no, it's just your feelings are big. And this is the situation. And that's cool.
0: This podcast has helped me learn. Learning, always learning. But that's what's exciting
1: is that we have curiosity Mm -hmm. that I believe other people have curiosity about. We have amazing guests who come in and really open up and share who they are. And I think we share who we are too, because that's the only way we can actually make change yeah. is by yeah. actually talking about this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Isn't that a surprise? And we didn't really talk about our, our one awesome thing, but my awesome thing is just the realization that it's important to surround yourself with people who kind of understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. So people who have an understanding of wanting to create accessible and inclusive spaces. Mm-hmm. Like I want to surround myself with people who also believe that. Totally. Yeah. And then when you encounter people who don't really understand and have never been curious about it, it can be feel really painful. It can feel embarrassing. I think just starting to come to light a little more around disability and the variety of what disability means. And that just because you have a disability doesn't mean you are, you are incapable or that you are going to be more difficult, or yeah, you know, all yeah. those things were you know, having to stand up and say, Actually, no, like this is like, yes, you may need some accommodations, but it doesn't mean that suddenly someone else is going to have to do so much more than you because you have a disability. And that's yeah. basically what I was confronted with with someone that I was potentially going to work with. And I decided not to work with them yeah. because I was like, You were such ableist thinking, yeah, you were so it's very closed minded, yeah. And I'm like, I can't associate myself with someone who thinks so little of me because I said the word disabled.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, want to just go back to you saying the curiosity to, to, to learn. And I feel like once you start that education, if you choose to go and like, you know, investigate and start learning about diversity and inclusion and accessibility, you start to see how they all intersect. And like you, once you learn one sort of, I guess, concept or understanding of like what privilege means or whatever, like whatever you've discovered, once you start opening that door, like this is what I found for myself. Once I started really further investigating, you know, my biases, I just got stuff quicker. It's always evolving. I think my my awesome thing, I can't share too much about it, but I'm working on a show right now that's going to be on CBC. And it's all about a group of friends with disabilities. And it's just like, it's not inspirational porn. It's not like... Oh, look what they can do. It's just about their lives. Having these stories out in the world is gonna hopefully allow more people to be curious and to like understand differently and maybe make the door not so heavy at the cafe that has the nice ramp, you know? Like <laughs> or maybe have the right button on the thing and yeah, I, to really like do it not because they have to, because there's like some sort of mandate that you have to fill in the the building code, but because it's a necessity for a lot of humans. It's impacting people. Yeah.
1: For me, I'm just, you know, continually learning and wanting to learn. And I'm really grateful for those people who like Aaron are being fairly vocal about what they are doing in their lives as they deal with different elements of their disability. Mm-hmm. I think it's just
0: helpful whether or not it's something I'm experiencing myself. We can all sort of connect by hearing mm-hmm. how somebody's journey is, yeah, regardless of what you might be you know, dealing with in your life. Like we, it's just these, our stories are, are so impactful. So thank you, Aaron for, for sharing and, yeah, and like letting us learn. And, oh, I'm just so, yeah, I'm so thankful for everybody that comes on here and shares, shares who they are and what they do. And it's, it's very, very lovely. So on that note.
1: We should let you all go. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor, mixed and mastered by Tony Bao, and additional editing by Blair Drover. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by
0: Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-Triple-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website at BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye! Bye.